You can get out your sermon outline. Let's do that, too. Uh, yeah, let's have the uh, three through six-year-old children come down. They were panicking that they were going to have to sit through church through the sermon. Thank you. You're ready. All right, so who really likes seeing those baptisms? Have fun. Yeah, you were. Yeah, yes, you were. All right. Maybe you have pictures. Ask your parents for pictures. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thanks so much for this morning. I thank you for the excitement, joy, and energy of these children. We pray that they would funnel it to hearing and learning interacting with their teachers this morning. I pray that they would hear the gospel, that they would hear the scriptures and apply them to their lives at their age and uh, know that you love them. We thank you for the joy of each one. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I can't preach in that. All right, now, let's get our sermon outlines. Um, Actually, uh, one more announcement. Um, The leadership of this church has decided that it's time to launch a few initiatives that will show... How committed our family... Oh, let me... me, uh, Wait. Everybody get a baby bottle? I'm going (laughs) to chuck you one. Let's start over. Um, The leadership of the church has uh, decided to launch uh, a few initiatives that we believe will show how committed our members are. Uh, really show that we're serious about our faith. I know that I'm not giving you much warning. I'm not giving you a lot of buildup because we just recently decided, uh, well, actually, I recently decided, um, that here's what's going to happen. Every member of this church will be expected to designate uh, each weekday to something different. Every Monday, we're going to expect you guys to fast all day. Every Tuesday... Uh, at night, it'll be time to go into the streets to witness and evangelize uh, all over Loudoun County. Uh, Wednesday nights will be the night to commit scripture to memory. Uh, you'll be learning a few every week to recite on Sundays. Um, and then Thursday will be the all-evening prayer vigils. Um, so we'll let you have your weekends um, until Sunday. Uh, then we're, gonna, we're instituting some stricter Sabbath ideas, uh, rules, we expect you to come to worship and then continue to worship all day with your family, um, and we'll be checking in. So every member of the church is going to be expected to keep this regiment from now on. This isn't a one week, this is just going to be our new thing. Um, 
The only catch is uh, really none of the officers, none of the elders, pastors, or deacons is going to need to do this. Um, we're already pretty working hard for the Lord. Um, but we want to see you guys. You guys have no idea if I'm serious or not. <laughs> Sorry, I thought I could get through this. Um, we do expect you to throw feasts on our behalf to honor us. Mostly the pastors. Um, so I'll send you an email with what days are good uh, for us. So how does that sound? Are you with me? All right. Oh, oh, somebody's read ahead here. That's not fair. Well, before you head for the exits, let me, uh, let me read some scripture to uh, make my point here. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. We'll do the first 12 verses. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This morning's text comes in what is when, Tuesday or Wednesday of the final week of Jesus' life. So we're getting to the end. And in the preceding passages, if you've been around, you know that uh, we've seen Jesus take the best curveball questions, to use a baseball metaphor, that the leaders of the time had, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes. And Jesus has hit those curveball pitches back at the pitcher and knocked them over or hit a home run or whatever the image is. And all along, he's been exposing these leaders for the pretenders that they are saying, you don't know the Scriptures. You are hypocrites. And now in chapter 23, Jesus is going to pull out all the stops in his intense criticisms of the scribes and Pharisees. This is probably the harshest language that we hear coming from Jesus. This morning's passage is, is the summary uh, introduction to the rest of the chapter that we'll, we'll get next week. Um, which contains what are called the seven woes. Uh, but this extended discourse is the 
fifth out of six that Matthew has in his gospel. And he's addressing now, he's kind of turned away from the Pharisees and the scribes. He's going to talk about them to the crowd that has gathered in Jerusalem uh, for the Passover. And he's speaking to his disciples as well. And he's helping them all get a handle on how to live under the poor leadership that they had at the time. The first part of Jesus' critique is that the scribes and Pharisees value preaching over practice. Verses 1 through 4. Preaching over practice. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They preach, but do not practice. You know, it's not hard to find multiple examples of Christian leaders whose lives failed to measure up to their ministry teaching standards. I'll just give a few from earlier in my life. Um, the pastor of a large congregation uh, with a beautiful family who did our premarital counseling and participated in our wedding, uh, was arrested several months after the wedding, uh, soliciting an undercover uh, police officer, and went to jail, lost his ministry. It was tragic. Another example, I remember uh, inviting, a, we had a single girl over to our house who was uh, worked for a pregnancy care center and taught absence education down in South Florida, and she was over for our house at dinner one night, and she just mentioned that she had been sick for a while, and my wife said, well, maybe you're pregnant. And I jumped in and said, honey, she works for an abstinence group. Don't say that. And she said, no, actually, I am pregnant. And we, uh, we came to find out that the dad was on staff at a local ministry and had really no plans on marrying her, uh, even being involved. So it's not a very earth-shattering revelation that most people, if asked to identify hypocrites, would probably say Christians or church leaders. And maybe they'd say politicians. But these seem to be the great examples to be good because to have a hypocrite, there must be some claim to holiness some high standard that they're not keeping. You don't call someone a hypocrite who doesn't claim to stand for anything or doesn't uh, even attempt to live in a righteous way or to tell you that they are. And this seems to be a common excuse for people not to go to church, but this is not a new observation. I mean, Jesus made this observation for us. When you call someone a Pharisee today, what you probably mean is that they're a hypocrite because Jesus has linked them so strongly in our mind. They've become synonyms. But it's interesting that Jesus says to do everything that they say to do, isn't it? Verse 3, 
He says, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Because often when we reject someone as a hypocrite, we reject everything about them, don't we? But Jesus says, just reject their actions because they don't act according to what they teach. But what they teach is right when they're teaching the words of Moses, the Old Testament, when they're explaining the scriptures to you. Listen and follow. That's what Jesus means by they sit on Moses' seat. God's people need leaders to teach God's word. Uh, the Pharisees and the scribes were commended for the times that they did teach God's word, but they were rebuked when they added to it and when they didn't follow what they taught. So it's important for us to remember that one of our, if our Christian leaders are revealed to be a poor followers of Jesus themselves, that does not invalidate their teachings. If a man teaches the scriptures, those who listen and learn are still built up and commended for their obedience to the scriptures. But we all know how angering it is to listen to a pastor give us a hard teaching and then we try to put it into practice ourselves only to find out that that pastor has no, hasn't put it into practice himself. No intention to, maybe. And that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees did, according to verses 3 and 4. For they practice, but do not preach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And here, Jesus is not calling the Old Testament laws the heavy burdens. I don't, I don't know if you thought that when you first read it. He's actually referring to the rules that the Pharisees had come up with in addition to the law. You see, their idea was that if they put a hedge around the law, meaning extra rules, and the laws back here, then you were so far, if you were worried about keeping this rule, this law, you wouldn't even be close to breaking this law. And so they put this hedge out there and expected people to keep those. But the extra rules were basically impossible to keep. Heavy burdens that God never intended. How much outrage did you feel when I was telling you those new ideas at the beginning of the sermon. Maybe some of you were thinking, I could do that. I should be fasting more often. I should be memorizing scripture. I could, I could maybe do some of that. Others were just despairing. How can I add anything else to my schedule? And I'm sure when you heard that the officers weren't going to participate, right? That really ticked you off. And that was the whole point. Of course, we're not going to be doing that. But that's how the Pharisees and scribes ran things. Imagine, though, a pastor exhorting everyone in his congregation during a sermon to tithe. 
Because to do so is to trust the Lord with your finances. Now, that's not an extra-biblical uh, rule. That's, that's scriptural. And perhaps you have only been giving 2 or 3% and you are really convicted by this sermon. And so you decide to step up your giving, get there to 10%. And you start tithing. And the Lord blesses you. The Lord blesses that obedience and what you taught, what you have been taught is good. But then you find out that pastor doesn't tithe, doesn't give demissions, doesn't give to anything. How likely would you be to stop tithing or maybe to go back to what you were doing before? I mean, nothing's really changed. The Lord still commands you to give generously and He still blesses your obedience. But just knowing that that pastor doesn't have that same obedience and faith, that messes with our sense of justice, doesn't it? And yet Jesus says, do what they say when they teach the Scriptures and don't be distracted by what they do. Now we all preach and teach as those who don't obey perfectly. All of our pastors have flaws. I'll list those all on Facebook tomorrow. I'll give you an update. But that doesn't mean that you get to avoid obeying God by pointing to us and saying they're not doing it perfectly. Because there's a real sense in which God can point to Jesus and say He did it perfectly. Make Him your model, not your fellow human being. Of course, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ in 1 Corinthians 11. So we as leaders need to strive to follow Christ so that others will follow us with confidence. Godly authenticity must characterize us as pastors, as officers, but all those who are Christians. Because it's not just pastors who are watched to see if we walk the talk. The world is watching you to see if you really trust God with your family, with your job, with your life. Do we practice what we preach? There's another danger for those who are known to be spiritual, and that is that they would value appearance over obedience. Verses 5 through 7. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Now, what is a phylactery? If you can't see that very well, that's Bob Dylan. And uh, that's not a harmonica or some musical thing on his head. Uh, that is, see the box there on his head. That is a phylactery. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.8 instructed the people to bind God's laws on their foreheads. Now it's hard to tell if that was meant literally or not, but it was taken literally. And what developed was this tiny box that contained copies of key passages of the law. And observant Jews at that time wore them on the arm or the forehead at least part of the day. And that's 
been passed down. Uh, the long fringes, the other picture there, are it's a reference to tassels that were attached to the garments to remind the people to obey the law of God. So the Pharisees made their boxes large and their tassels long so that people would be impressed. It's religious showing off in the most blatant way in their appearance that they could. Earlier in Matthew, remember that Jesus mentioned that they would disfigure their faces so that people would know they were fasting and that they prayed in public so that people would be impressed. In addition, they just they loved to be honored in every way, whether it was where they were seated, how they were greeted. They loved the praise of men. They desired honor and appearances more than actual obedience and service. Now, what would the modern equivalent of phylacteries and tassels be? I don't know, maybe it's uh, the bracelets, the what would Jesus do, or fully reliant on God. It's hard, though, to draw a direct parallel, though, because we're not in a culture that commends godliness. I have a hard time. I don't want to criticize believers who would wear those. I commend that, actually. Um, Christian t-shirts, a cross, a you know, fish tattoo. I don't, I don't know. Different ways of identifying yourself as a believer. I think in this culture, you're, gonna, you're more likely to be ridiculed at school or around town rather than having people be impressed with you. So I don't see quite the parallel there. But we do have a subculture, cultures that, that commend godliness. And we should watch to make sure that we're not showing off our godliness to those in our church, our university group, our young life group, uh, Bible study, whatever group that it is. I mean, I've heard people bragging that they get up before everyone else to pray or saying that they're the only ones who really care about witnessing the people. We've got to be careful with that and drawing attention to ourselves. Now, we know bodybuilders like to wear sleeveless shirts to show off their muscles, right? Brilliant people like to answer questions and use big words to make sure that people know how smart they are. Successful people like to name drop and, and casually mention their achievements to get recognition from others. Even pastors love to be asked how big and how cool their church is. The trick, of course, is finding ways to call attention to your strengths very subtly. Right? The Pharisees weren't so subtle. They were pretty blatant about it, a pretty easy target. But I look in my own heart. I hope you look in your heart and recognize that need. Let me ask something to those who post things on social media. Why do you post the things that you do about yourself? I mean, I, many of us are just updating uh, friends and family uh, about what's happening in our lives. That's great. I, I really enjoy seeing what's happening in people's lives. 
Um, so I'm not bashing that at all. But there's a real undercurrent in the things that we post. I mean, I definitely recognize that in myself. Uh, wanting to be congratulated, wanting to be praised, to be thought well of. This seems like the modern day equivalent of wanting to be praised in the marketplace and honored at feasts that Jesus critiques. And there's all varying degrees of subtlety in what we post, right? But if you recognize that problem in yourself, that tendency, maybe challenge yourself to post things that make others look good. Back to the Pharisees. We can look good in all areas of life, but it's a little twisted to want to be known as the best follower of God. Right? It's kind of like saying, I'm the most humble person there is. I'm the best follower of God. The very fact that you want to be acknowledged and loved by people in how well you follow God shows that you are way more concerned about yourself than you are about bringing glory to God. Having a right understanding of who we are before God means knowing that we are wretched sinners who are just blessed more than we deserve with God's favor. But in addition to the problems with their preaching and their appearance, the Pharisees also strove for honor over submission. Verses 8 through 10. But you, Jesus says, are not to be called rabbi. I think probably he's addressing the disciples at this point, probably not so much the crowd, but you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. I've struggled with this passage. Was this forbidding the use of the title teacher or calling someone father? Um, since Scripture is its own best interpreter, it's hard to believe that that's exactly what Jesus meant when Paul recognized the office of teacher as a spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 12. So let me have uh, Ligon Duncan explain that uh, the title is not the point. Jesus is after heart attitude. He is after religious leaders who want to be exalted because of the titles which they are called by. And he is warning against religious disciples over-exalting their spiritual leaders by using the titles improperly. God is our Father. Christ is our teacher and our Savior. We need to get that foundation right first. Honor your spiritual leaders, but don't be tempted to give them the same respect and obedience that is due to the Lord. They are just your brothers. Now, a funny thing happened to me this week that I hope will illustrate it a little bit. Uh, I play basketball at Ida Lee on Tuesday mornings, and I invited a couple guys there 
uh, after we played to go out to breakfast. And we had a great time. Uh, at the end, I tried to pay for breakfast, uh, but they, they insisted that they were going to pay. And one of the guys, knowing that I'm a pastor, said, hey, I have to do all I can so that I don't miss the rapture. So I got to buy you breakfast. Okay. True story. I'm sure it was tongue-in-cheek, um, but what he meant, I think, was that somehow treating a pastor well would help his spiritual life. He needs to know that I have zero say in his eternal destiny. That I am just his brother and that he needs to know God is his father and Christ is his teacher and savior. And what Jesus critiques of the scribes and Pharisees boils down to is that true greatness is found in humility. The final point is uh, conclusion verses 11 and 12 present us with a choice. Choose humility, choose to be exalted. Verses 11 and 12 the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I think the thesis verse of the whole chapter is verse 12, particularly the first part. Um, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. The scribes and Pharisees have been exalting themselves, and Jesus is there to humble them. And there will be a greater humbling if they miss the kingdom. We all have that choice. Will we seek to exalt ourselves? Or will we walk the path of humility knowing that God will reward us for our humility? All of these areas that Jesus has pointed out in the preceding ten verses tie into this idea of humbling ourselves. Because a humble man who knows that he is a fallen, wicked sinner who has been miraculously saved by the undeserved grace of God will not look to exalt himself. He will not try to weigh down others with unrealistic spiritual rules, right? The heavy burdens. He will not draw attention to his strengths and look to others to build him up. He will not expect flattering titles and irrational deference. He will look for ways to exalt Jesus and for ways to serve others. That is how humility changes us. And someday, on that great day, when I stand before my Heavenly Father, I want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that will make all my efforts in this life worth it. So knowing that that time will come, why do I insist on trying to get other people to build me up? I can be freed. Stop 
looking, trying to get everyone else to tell me how great I am because the one person that I need to please is already pleased with me through my relationship with his son. And Jesus, the great instructor, was the perfect person to point these things out to the crowd, to his disciples, to the Jewish leaders, because he kept all of these areas that he's criticized them in perfectly. Think about three areas. Jesus never failed to practice what he preached, right? His teaching revealed the will of the Father, and his life was a perfect obedience to that will. I mean, he would, he would tell his disciples, love one another, and then he would heal someone, cast out a demon, and show his love very tangibly. He would tell his followers to, to serve one another, and then he would wash their feet. He was the only person that could not be accused of hypocrisy in any way. Jesus was the embodiment of humility. Philippians 2, 8, 9 reminds us that being found in human form, He, Jesus, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him, bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Back to Matthew 23, that formula of what Jesus teaches, he who humbles himself will be exalted is a perfect description of his life. The opposite, of course, of the Jewish leaders who exalted themselves but would be humbled later. We know that what happens to Jesus happens to us as we die with him, as we are raised with him. And so the fact that he is exalted because he humbled himself, we have a beautiful promise that we will be too. And thirdly, whereas the, the Pharisees loaded weight on others that they didn't intend to bear themselves, Jesus bore the full weight of the cross on our behalf so that we don't have to. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take the load of sin off your back. Stop trying to carry it. Stop trying to pay for it. Because I took on your load of sin, and I paid for it on the cross. All of your sins were heaped on me, and I bore the wrath of God, the penalty for your sins, so that you don't have to. In a few minutes, we will eat bread and drink the fruit of the vine that represent for us Christ's body and blood sacrificed on the cross. We will be reminded that though our sin alienated us from God, that Christ's obedience and sacrifice redeems us and earns forgiveness and eternal life for us. Let's pray as the music team makes its way to the stage. Lord God, we come back to your scriptures, hopefully daily, but weekly together we come.
And it's easy to see how Jesus rebukes people in his day. And it's a little harder to allow those rebukes to make their way to our hearts. Lord, I pray that as we think on how we draw attention to ourselves, as we seek the praise of others, as we are man-pleasers, I pray that you would root out those sins. pray that we would understand godly humility that says we have one person to please. That is you. Lord, help us to take hold of the Scriptures, hunger and thirst for righteousness that you showed us the way that we have not only the example of Jesus living the perfect life, living out true humility and servanthood, but even greater, we have His sacrificial atonement, His death on the cross that frees us from our sins, frees us forever from having to bear the load of our own guilt and our performance. God, work in our hearts as we search to match our Christian lives, our walk with what we affirm in the Scriptures, what we talk, what we preach. And may we cling to you, knowing that we never keep the Scriptures perfectly. We never are above the charge of hypocrisy in some area of our lives. So teach us grace and forgiveness. Thank you for your mighty work on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. First Peter chapter 5, 6 through 11 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little time, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.